Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. When I walk the hill so high around the town where I was born, New York seems so far away, though I was just there yesterday. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, Tim Golding. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Good to be with you. All right. How did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? My dad, he became a fan of Gord's in the 60s. Uh, I think he became aware of him through Peter, Paul, and Mary recording Gord songs and Ian and Sylvia. So I can recall growing up on the weekends, my dad has always taken pride in having a very good stereo and having a turntable. And he had a couple of Gord's albums, specifically the Gord's Gold double album and Summertime Dream, and I can remember waking up on the weekends hearing Gordon Lightfoot. My dad's downstairs making breakfast. So that was probably the first time I became aware of him. I didn't really start to get into his music until I entered my teen years, but but my first awareness was through my father when I was little. So your dad kind of planted the seed, and then you got it watered a little later on, huh? That's right. That's right. Fantastic. What do you like about Gordon's music? For me, it's it's the whole package. It's the voice, it's the melody, the, the use of his chords in his songs. I'm not a, a musician of any type, but there's just something about the mood that he sets in the songs. Like I said, it's the complete package. It all comes together, and it's just something that's very evocative and stirs your emotions. Yeah, well said. Evocative, for me, of nature of affairs of the heart, of the scenery that he paints, of domestic situations, I mean, everything. He does such a great job with so few words because songwriters have to do that in a way that nobody else can do because they have music to think about. I don't think even poets have the kind of restrictions on them that songwriters do. What about seeing Lightfoot perform? What have your uh, experiences been with that? Yeah, I went back and I looked. I've seen him 13 times. I'm 44 years old. So the first time I saw him was 1995. And then I saw him another 12 times up until 2022. I saw him two times in 2022 on his final tour and saw him at Massey Hall in 2006. My wife and I, she was very pregnant with our first child. We flew up to Toronto and spent a weekend up there and saw him at you know the House of Gord in Massey Hall, which was a real thrill. Ronnie Hawkins was in the audience that night. Uh, the Prime Minister of Canada was there. I mean, it was really oh, something, wow. you know, to see him in his real element 
where everybody said, if you ever get a chance, you got to see Gordon Massey Hall. And I was lucky enough that I did. Yeah, 13 times. And then there were another two times over that span of years where there were shows that were scheduled. But uh, when he became ill uh, with his aneurysm in 2002, one of the shows that I was going to go see got canceled. And there was one that was canceled due to a thunderstorm. It was an outdoor concert. And those are disappointing times. We wish we could have seen him those two times, but there were good reasons why we couldn't. Yeah. I mean, this was not some greedy manager or something had a beef with Lightfoot or no. you know, a beef with the venue. It was one of those things, but two of those things really kind of unavoidable from what you're right. saying. Did you ever get a chance to meet the man? I did. I was lucky enough, mostly in the early years of going to shows, we would wait outside after the concert. I also became a collector of his memorabilia. Um, you know, when I got into my teen years and started making some money and started buying things. So I've got a room in my house that's covered with Gordon Lightfoot posters and pictures, promotional pictures. I would take those with me. And he was always very good if you waited outside and if you were willing to wait long enough. Eventually, he would come out and he would dutifully sign a number of things for you. We would take pictures. We would talk. He was very good with the fans. I'm happy that I did wait for him in those times because it was really a thrill to meet him. And also kind of coming full circle, my dad and my brother were with me during the final time that I saw him. We didn't get to meet him that night, but we did meet him earlier after some shows in Harrisburg and different times. So that was a real thrill too. Fantastic. And you've given me an idea that maybe what I'll do is ask people to take pictures of their Lightfoot swag and then we'll put a link to that on the the show webpage or something, because I think that would be kind of fun to see all the things. And this is not a video cast, but to those of you that are listening, Tim is wearing a Lightfoot t-shirt as we're doing the video here. So you can't see it, but just take my word for it. He is. You wanted to talk about Highway Songs, which to me is one of his very best but is one that is relatively small in the Lightfoot canon. So I'm wondering, why did you want to talk about that one in particular today? Yeah, the interesting thing about the old Dan's Records album for me is that when I was becoming aware, more aware of his music and starting to buy uh, CDs and things like that, for the longest time, you couldn't buy the old Dan's Records album on CD. It was one of the four Warner Brothers albums that remained kind of not in circulation until after his Warner Brothers contract ended in 1998. Rhino Records put out the box set a, a year or two after that. And then they re-released those four albums. It was uh, Old Dance Records, Salute, Shadows, and Dream Street Rose finally came out on CD. So for the longest time, you couldn't get them. And the two songs from Old Dan's Records that were accessible were Old Dan's Records, which was on Gord's Gold, mm -hmm. and then It's Worth Believing, which was on Gord's Gold Volume 2. And those songs, you know, were the only two that you could get. So I, I was lucky enough in the late 90s to get a, a vinyl copy of Old Dan's Records. Found it in a record store in Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania, outside Pittsburgh, where I grew up. Took it home, put it on my dad's turntable and was just blown away from the first strums of Farewell to Annabelle, the first song on the album, through that entire album until you get to Highway Songs at the end. It was just like nothing of his that I'd ever heard. It's a very country-sounding album, just very different. 
those two songs, Farewell to Annabelle at the beginning and Highway Songs at the end, are very interesting songs in how they build uh, musically. They start out with just a very basic strumming by Gord, and then the, the other instruments kind of get added in, and there's a drum beat eventually, like halfway through the song. I mean, it's just a cool, cool album and a very cool song. Old Dan's Records, uh, the album, is, in my mind, one of his best, and it was strange to me why it wasn't available for so long, but once it did become available, I was really happy. Yeah, I thought about that also, and the thing that stuck out to me when I was doing a little bit of research on this is that the record itself was not as successful as Don Quixote had been. I mean, it still charted. We'll talk about the specifics of that a little bit later. But it was a kind of a step down in terms of chart success from Don Quixote. Now, of course, Sundown is going to come and knock everybody out of the park. I don't know if it was reviewed badly. I haven't looked at the reviews of his albums in a little while, but The album itself just didn't have as much chart success, except, of course, in Canada. And again, we'll talk about that. I think for me, you kind of gave, you know, a broader answer about why you liked it. And the thing that just got me was that the chord progression was just amazing. This folky, engaging, minor changes, minor seconds, minor thirds. And it's also one of the few songs where he overtly mentions Canada. I mean, he talks about Canadian landscapes a lot, and he's talked about Canadian history, Canadian Railroad Trilogy, other things. But this is one of the few that I've heard where he actually says Canadian. I mean, he comes right out and says it. And I think there's a little bit of healthy nationalism for that. I think it was great when I first heard it because I was giving a final exam at the college where I was working at the time. And it was an early morning thing. So I got done about 9.30 in the morning and I hadn't had anything to eat yet. So I said, okay, well, I'll drive over the coast and get some breakfast. And this song popped up on Sirius XM and I loved it and I didn't catch the name of the song. And so it was not until years later that I heard that again and say, that's where I heard that. And that's that song. Oh, great. And then of course, when you said you wanted to talk about it. I thought, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Do you have any particular anecdotes about the song or, you know, like a time when you played it or when it came on the radio that, you know, was just perfect or that you, a memory you associate with it? Yeah. To me, you mentioned the Canadianness of it. And it's very true. He's very overtly Canadian in the lyrics. And the interesting thing about that album was it was the first album, aside from Sunday Concert, where he recorded in Canada. So it was the first time he recorded a studio album in Canada with a bunch of Canadian players. And I think it was maybe influencing his mood, influencing his songwriting. You touched on the kind of the commercial side of it, and I think he had the great success with If You Could Read My Mind, had a smash hit, had a high-selling album. The next albums did fine. They did okay. Of course, they all sold well in Canada. When you get to this album, the interesting thing is he put out two albums in the same year, 1972. He put out Don Quixote at the beginning and Old Dan's Records later on at the end of the year. And I think there's something to the fact that he was recording in Canada for the first time with a bunch of Canadian players. And I think it really influenced the feel of this album more than any other up until that point, at least. But for me to listen to it, I love listening to it 
on a road trip. I'm not Canadian. I don't live in Canada, but it makes you think about home and think about the warm feelings of home. So it's, it's an interesting song in that respect. So it evokes home for you and you would want to listen to it on the road, as would I. I mean, that would be my yeah. ideal. Although I don't know if I would be driving home or driving away from home while I was listening to it. And I think I would want to be, despite the fact that it talks about the blue Canadian sky, I would want to listen to this on a cloudy day or on a fog bank or something like that, just because maybe it inspired, hey, you're driving through this now, but the sun is coming. Maybe give me something to shoot for in some yeah. weird sort of way. We'll be right back to our conversation with Tim Golding about highway songs. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Hey, I just wanted to take a second to tell you about my latest podcast discovery. Fire Breathing Kittens is an actual play one-shot podcast that plays various tabletop role-playing games with a season-long plot. Because there's a beginning and an end to each week's story, you can start at any episode. Yeah, you won't miss a thing. Every week has a different combination of four from the same rotating cast of people. Join fire-breathing kittens as they solve detective mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. That's fire-breathing kittens podcast. Check it out. In 1942, when the world needed a hero to fight the forces of evil, a woman had the courage to step forward. Her name was Helen Meeker. Her adventures took her across the United States and behind the lines of both the European and Pacific fronts. President Franklin Roosevelt trusted her judgment. Adolf Hitler put a price on her head. And in the face of overwhelming odds, she battled through everything that was thrown at her, dodged death countless times, and challenged the most diabolical figures in history. The star of more than 20 novels, Helen Meeker proved her grit and determination time and time again. And now the Long Highway players bring the book series to life on the airways. These exciting dramas will place you in the middle of the action, immerse you in riveting drama, plunge you into unimagined intrigue, and confound you with dark mysteries, while giving you the opportunity to live adventures in a time when the fate of the world hung in the balance. Enjoy the exploits of Helen Meeker and follow author Ace Collins's In the President's Service series on That's Not Canon Podcast Network. Let's talk a little bit about the genesis of it. I could not find a single thing in Nicholas Jennings' biography of Lightfoot. And as a matter of fact, it said highway songs and then comma, and then there's nothing there. So I think it may have been a misprint from the publisher. But I did get a little bit from the songbook liner notes. And what it said was, and I'm quoting directly, I used to travel back and forth between New York and Toronto all the time. And I just wanted to write something about getting back on Canadian soil. I always feel good when I get back here. I really do. And the lyrics kind of speak for themselves as far as his affection and his affinity for Canada. So I don't know if you have any other information about how the song got written. That was all I could find. Yeah, I don't have anything more. I can only suspect that he was, uh, again, writing songs for an album. I picture him sitting under a, a maple tree, you know, that he mentions in the song. 
and kind of looking up and saying, oh, I'm really glad to be home. And I'm going to write a song about my travel and the fact that I love coming back home and being on Canadian soil. And that's my picture of how he probably wrote it, you know, is that he was feeling good about home, wanted to write something about being there. And the fact that he spent a lot of his time by this point in his life, he was spending a lot more time on the road, mentions being in New York uh, the day before. So I think the way his life was changing after the success of If You Could Read My Mind and then being on the road so much more, it's kind of an autobiographical song to me because he's, he's as we go through the lyrics, he's talking about the aspects of his life up until that point. And it's, it's interesting in an autobiographical sense, I think. You know, I don't know if he had a maple tree in his backyard where he was living at that particular time. Obviously, the Canadian flag, the middle of it is a maple leaf. So I wondered if he was throwing that in just to add a little Canadiana or whether he was actually sitting. If anybody knows what he had in his backyard, please get in touch with me. <laughs> There's an email <laughs> at the end of the show. Talk about the lyrics a little bit. When I walk the hill so high around the town where I was born, and I've never been to Ontario, I've never been to Toronto, and I've never been to Aurelia, but I do know that there are a number of ski resorts not too far from Aurelia, and if they're going to be skiing, you got to go down a hill. So one would surmise that he's walking around. There are literal hills um, yeah. around there. New York seems so far away, though I was there just yesterday. And he mentions flying a little later on in the song, but he did say he was traveling back and forth a lot between New York and Toronto. You can make the drive in a day, although it's about a seven-hour drive between the two. And maybe he was flying, maybe he was taking the train. I have no idea what the transportation was like, but when he's saying, I was there just yesterday. Yeah, I think that's literal, that he was probably just there like over the weekend and maybe he got home. This was written on a Tuesday or something like that. Right. I have played on my guitar in coffee houses, halls and bars. Everyone that I call friend knows they will not be forgot. Now, let's stop there for just a second. He's obviously takes his friendship seriously, particularly with the musicians that he's played with and his backup right. band. But I'm wondering if when he says they won't be forgot, I'm wondering how he's going to express the fact that he won't be forgetting them. And is he talking about, I'm just saying that, you know, I'll always remember you, or do you think he's going to be, Hey, I want to show my appreciation some other way. You know, I'll be sharing my fortunes with you or something like that. Do you have any thoughts on that? This is kind of where it gets into, he's tracking his career up to that point. He starts in coffee houses, he goes into bars, he's schooning clubs, and now he's doing halls. So I think he's kind of talking about, look, I have this road of success, right? I'm achieving these great heights, but I'm not going to forget my friends, the people that are back home, the people that knew me before I was filling halls of people, you know? So I think that's what I take from it is that he's talking about, look, I'm in this successful position, but I'm not going to forget where I came from or who my friends are. Very, very cool interpretation. I absolutely agree with you that you think about it, there's a kind of a progression, although if it's a hall that's a concert hall, most bars are smaller than that. And coffee houses would probably be even smaller than that, at least at the time that he's talking about. But I like the fact that I've made progress in my career, but the people who have been my friends, they will continue to be my friends. They're not going to be just kind of, oh, yeah, I think I 
hung out with him once or I jammed right. with him a couple of times or something like that. Trains and planes and rented cars, singers, saints, and other stars. And I'm wondering if he's acknowledging at this point that he's a, a, a star. He probably was in Canada. He wasn't an international superstar the way he would be after Sundown came out. But other stars, what's the context there, do you think? Well, that's a great line. I mean, he's he's again talking about, and I equate it back to, you know, he has the level of success where he's becoming an international star after, if you could read my mind, right? Becomes a huge hit and he's filling bigger places and starting to fly on planes a lot more. I've seen him in other interviews say, you know, after If You Could Read My Mind, everything changed. I had to then hire a plane to get around because the promoters want me to play in two places a day or I've got to go from city to city and I've got to hire a plane to get there. So he's talking about planes, trains and rented cars because he gets to a city, he gets off a plane, he's got to get in a rental car. And then he's talking about singers, saints and other stars. And to me, he's recognizing that all these new people are starting to come around. And they want to be close to the star. So he's acknowledging, yeah, I'm a star. But in the next line, he says, I suspect them, everyone. And he's talking about feeling a little uneasy around all these new people that he's coming in contact with. He might be a star, but he doesn't necessarily feel like a star or feel comfortable with his stardom. Yeah. And suspecting them maybe of just wanting to get close to him for whatever reason, but it's a selfish motivation that they have. Correct. Right. And this is before the time, although not long before, people started using buses to do these long tours through right. North America or through the States and through Canada. Because to use a plane implied that you had a certain amount of money and that right. you were making a certain amount of money in a certain amount of days or a certain period of time. And unless you're Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran, and you're making $100 million in 30 days, planes are just not feasible. But if he was having to use that at least part of the time to get around, I mean, that means right. he's very successful and he's got a company right. that will pay for that. Right. Yeah, he was with Warner by now. And I think the level of success that he was starting to achieve in the early 70s, these things were becoming factors in his life, you know, having to get around, like I said, fly from place to place and get there quickly because the money's on the table and you got to go play to get it, right? So <laughs> it was the good and the bad, right? Yeah. Just for now, I'd like to rest in the shade of a maple tree to the blue Canadian sky. I'll say a prayer for the world out there, which is just a great little couplet. And I'm not going to read anything further into it, but it's a great way of having a chorus for the yes. song, such as it is. When I stand on my own sod, it feels so good to be home by God. The winter wind has turned its head, but I always came up warm somehow. Now, this one was a little mysterious. What does he mean by turned my head? And is this whole thing a metaphor for something else coming up warm somehow? In short, is he basically saying I'm a survivor? What do you think? Yeah, there could be something to that. Canada's cold. The wind is pretty bad up there. When we get the Arctic wind in the Northeast, you know, we, uh, a lot of people down here don't like it, <laughs> but you oh, know, they yeah. have to live with it up there much more than we do. So mm -hmm. I think could just be coming at it that way. He could also be coming at it from the side of like, yeah, I've survived this trail. The winter wind has turned my head, but I've come up warm because I'm back home again. I'm 
where my people are. I feel comfortable here. You can think of it that way, and you can think of Canada's cold, but I'm warm when I'm here because this is the warmth of home. And maybe it's the warmth of feeling alive and being able to rest, whereas when you're touring, you're going to be dead tired. And when you have to tour through the snow, right? I can't even imagine. I mean, I've been in New York City during a snowfall, and I don't care to go back at that <laughs> particular. And I've also been in Pennsylvania. I've been in Erie when it got really cold. And it's another place I don't care to go again. Thank you. Yeah. Very much. Bottles, beads, and cigarettes, and lovers that I ain't found yet. Picking with a friend till dawn and singing all those highway songs. And he finally gets around to the theme of the thing. I would travel all my life if loneliness was not the price. While headed north across that line's the only time I'm flying. And he could mean we've talked about flying in a plane or he's spiritually high. You right. know, that he feels like he's transcending it all. It's the time when he's truly happy is that he's getting back home. Although we know that he loves touring somewhere. USA right. is perfect example of that. Oh my gosh, but yes. he feels more connected to his roots, rightfully so, yeah. you know, when he's coming back. And then it kind of ends there. And I think this song more than any is the one that, I understood what Bob Dylan said when he said, when I hear a Lightfoot song, I wish it was last forever because this mm -hmm. song, I kind of come on more, 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 more. You know, I really wanted it to go on longer, but I, maybe you did too. I don't know. Yeah. And the, the play out on that song is an extended kind of instrumental that goes on for quite a number of seconds. And uh, yeah, I wish there would have been another verse or him going into more detail or explaining something further, but it's a, it's a good song. It's a toe tapper, as he would say. You know, it, it, it's got a nice beat, a nice groove to it. And uh, the sound, I'm sure we'll get into, you know, the recording of it and the players and how it all came together. But it's just a great kind of way to end that album, uh, that long play out. And that's a good place for us to jump into the album, because it was the very last song on the record. It was not released as a single the record was, again, produced by Lenny Waronker. The album went to number one in Canada. We'd already alluded to that. 95 in the U.S., which was a significant drop from Don Quixote. It did not chart in Britain or Australia or New Zealand. I think Sundown may have been the last time that one of his records charted in Britain. I'm going to have to look back at that. But it did represent a pinnacle for him of some sort because it won the Juno Award in 1974 for Folk Album of the Year. Now, I don't understand the discrepancy. It came out in 72 and it took them until 74 to recognize it, but it is what mm -hmm. it is. And then Lightfoot also won the Juno for Folk Singer of the Year. So it may not have been as much a critical success or a commercial success, but it certainly was one more really big milestone for Lightfoot in the eyes of the listening public. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think about his career as the momentum of it from the 60s when he's a songwriter getting known that way. And then he's producing albums, but they're not really commercially being very successful. And then he signs with Warner Brothers and he has the, the success with his first album. And then he has nice success with the follow-up albums too. And people are still recording his songs and he's He's building a career and he's enjoying some success. But this album, like you said, 
commercially was probably a disappointment for him because it didn't do as well as the prior album. But I think of it as building his sound towards sundown, right? He's building every album in the early 70s is kind of a difference. And I think he's he's reaching. He's trying different things. This album is more country tinged. You know, this is the album immediately prior to Sundown. And that album sounds completely different than this album. But he's collecting, I think, all of this information in his brain and all these sounds. And it's all building towards the career zenith that he achieves with with uh, Sundown and then the string of albums in the mid-70s. I mean, all of his albums are great. But this one is is a nice kind of segue into those next albums where he really achieves great, great success. We'll be right back to our conversation with Tim Golding about highway songs. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. The American West is a place of lore and legend, of triumphs and tragedies. No one can tell the true stories of the West better than author Rick Steber. And now there's a podcast showcasing his work. It's called Writing the West, and every episode will feature his short stories and his poetry. If you want to know the true stories of cowboys, pioneers, miners, and Native Americans, this 15-minute podcast is for you. Writing the West is available on Spotify, Audible, Podbean, or wherever you get your listening matter. That's Writing the West, the work of Rick Steber. You mentioned the fact that he's kind of trying new things, new emphases. And Dylan was doing the same kind of thing just a couple of years earlier. I mean, he went from folk to rock to country and then back to rock. And then later in the 70s, he'll get into gospel. And I'm not prepared to say that Lightfoot looked at Dylan and said, "Okay, well, if he can explore his chops, then I can explore my chops the same way. But he certainly was doing stuff that he hadn't necessarily done before. And then sundown is going to be something else again. And that kind of brings us to the personnel who played on this. You have the usual suspects, which is Gordon, Red, Terry, Rick, and Barry Keene. Dave Brown also played some percussion on the album. The Good Brothers, who are going to be playing a lot on Summer Side of Life, got involved with this, Bruce and Larry, and they also play on Redwood Hill. Uh, which I've talked about last season or the season before. Nick DeCaro gets my award for having the best contribution to this particular song. We'll talk about him in a second or two. And then Ollie Strong played steel guitar because Pee Wee apparently had not appeared in the movie, so to speak, at that point. So a lot of very powerful players, which brings us to the next question, Tim, which is what is your favorite musical part? of the song. 
the auto harp from the opening segment of the album, you know, it sets a tone and then it's interwoven. It's not on every song, but it's, it's a frequent fixture on the album. And again, you're not hearing a lot of banjo auto harp on any of his other albums up until this point. So the interesting thing about the two albums that he released in 1972 is Don Quixote sounds completely different than old Dan's records. And I think of Don Quixote as kind of the cousin of sundown and old Dan's records as the cousin of cold on the shoulder, because old Dan's records is kind of a country infused album. And so is cold on the shoulder, which comes later, but this is the first time you see Barry Keene on drums and then he comes back and is hired later on in the 70s, 1976, to be his full-time drummer. But this is the first time he ever plays on anything with Lightfoot because he was primarily a studio musician, a hired gun to come in. And he played on this, and then Lightfoot didn't use him again until later. He used Jim Gordon on the, the bigger albums in the middle. On the records, yes. Right. And the other interesting thing is why I say that this is like a cousin to uh, Cold on the Shoulder is the steel guitar. This is the first time Lightfoot uses the steel guitar. It's always strong. It's not peewee, like you said, but that sound becomes integral later on again. He doesn't use it on the Sundown album, but it comes back on Cold on the Shoulder, and then it stays with him for a number of albums after that. But this is the first time he uses it. And I think he's, again, in the early 70s, a lot of his contemporaries are starting to use pedal steel and they're starting to use these different musical elements like Neil Young, the Harvest album, you know, right. pedal steel, very heavy on that album. And it came out around the same time. So I think they're all hearing each other. And you mentioned Dylan and, you know, it's interesting. I think that they're all looking at what the other guys and gals are doing and they're looking for new sounds and how can they use this? How can I use that on my, you know, so... <laughs> It was. It's interesting in that respect that this is the first time you see pedal steel, and then it comes back later. It says a lot about the kind of zeitgeist that was going on in the early '70s, because country was beginning to cross over into pop. At, I guess it had happened before, but it was certainly happening at this particular time where if you were a country artist, you could also make it in the pop charts and make it significantly in the pop charts. Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and Kenny Rogers are three perfect examples of that, and there are probably others. One other irony that I just thought of is that Dylan recorded the Nashville Skyline album in 1969, and then he virtually, you never heard him play a song from that record ever again, except for Lay Lady Lay. The rest of it is hardly any other performances live of I Threw It All Away or Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You or Girl From The North Country. Just almost nothing. Now, why am I mentioning this is because apparently Lightfoot never played highway songs in concert. Not yeah. once. And OK, it wasn't a single, but I think it was a perfect. I mean, you said it was a toe tapper. I'm sure the audience would have loved it. And he just never got around to it. And I think it must have been because he was trying to promote the singles and trying to get airplay for that, or not trying to get airplay, but trying to promote sales of the singles rather than here's a song from the record that you may never have even known was there. Because as far as I know, Highway Songs wasn't even released as a B-side. No, you know, amazingly, they didn't even release Old Dan's records as a single. And that, to me, if you're thinking about that time frame, the early 70s, 
that's a quintessential radio type song for the 70s, for the early 70s. They could have released that as a single and and probably per- propelled this album because that song did become a staple of his concert. He played Old Man's Records a lot, played it as an encore or played it towards the end of a show because it was a nice kind of toe tapper song, upbeat. Highway songs is the same vein to me. But yeah, it's just, it's surprising, but it's also not because I think it's an album song. Highway Songs is an album song. It it fills a place on the album. It's a great song. It would have been fantastic live, but by this point, he had so many songs to choose from that maybe it just didn't work for him on stage. Maybe he didn't think it would work. It's great that we have the recorded version that we do. You know, you made me look this up. I don't do this often while I'm recording, but I wanted to look up his singles. And in 72, he had three singles or released three singles. Beautiful and Alberta Bound, which were both from Don Quixote. You Are What I Am was released as a single. 73, also from old Dan's records, was Can't Depend on Love. And yeah. I don't have the B-sides of those, but it it is an album song, but who knows what the company was thinking at that particular time and because they right. didn't put it out as a single and they didn't put it out as a B-side. I would have made a different choice, and I think you would have too. But yeah. it is what it is. And we're now way too late to, to do any yeah. Monday morning quarterbacking on that, I guess. That's right. Interesting also is that apparently no one has ever officially covered this song on a record. And I'm not talking about people who s- decide to sit down in front of a computer and play something and upload it to YouTube. Maybe somebody has done that. But as far as official Lightfoot covers, I can't find any of this one. So, number one, have you found any? And number two, is there someone that you would like to hear try this song? Or is it one of those that, nope, Lightfoot did it, nobody else touches it? You know, yeah, I did not find anybody else that recorded it beyond, like you said, people that recorded at home and then put it out on the internet. And there's some great versions out there, of course, of all of Gordon's songs by by fans. But no, no official recordings. And I think, again, it's a very Canadian song. It would be great if if there was a great artist from Canada that could pick it up and put it out today. To me, Gord's version is obviously going to be the pinnacle, but you know there are other people who could definitely pull off this song that maybe aren't Canadian. I mean, I'd like to hear Jason Isbell maybe do it, or Tony Rice could have done a great version of this. He did so many great versions of other songs, or like a Billy Strings or someone like that could really have a good go at this song, but they're not Canadian, so it might not sound right. <laughs> You got to almost be a Canadian artist. You know, that's what I'm thinking. Either that or you are a kind of an expat who's living in Canada. But anyway, you have to have an affinity for the place. And two people that I would have liked to have heard, one has passed away and the other, I think if he's listening, I hope he takes me up on this. Dan Rogers would have been good at it. And the other person whom I hope will do it at some point, if he hasn't done it already, is John McLaughlin. Um, Mm -hmm. that I've had on the show a few times and who does amazing renditions of Lightfoot songs. So John, if you're listening, Tim and Mike really hope that you'll do that song. And you can just say, you know, I got this idea from Tim Golding and Mike Messner. That'd be fine. Uh, (laughs) Tim, as we're sort of winding up here, any other closing thoughts on the song that you want to share with us? Uh, You know, one other interesting aspect of it is that Gord did choose to put it on the box set. He was very particular about the songs. He only had so many songs from each album that he could choose to put on the box set. 
And this one did make that cut. So I think for him, it was meaningful in that way, whether it ever was a hit or anything else. I think he he had a, a respect for the song, which was nice to hear or nice to see on the box set. I think he uh, enjoyed the song. I think he was proud of the song. He just never played the song live. And we are poorer for that because I think it would have been a lot of fun to see that. I know I would play the song live if I was still doing music, but yeah, uh, you know, that's as may be. Tim Golding, great to talk with you about this. This is another really undervalued gem of a tune that we're talking about here. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I hope to have you on again real soon. Thanks very much, Mike. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going. And you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, my next episode is going to feature my guest Clover Cameron, and she and I will be discussing the song Walls from Lightfoot's second album, The Way I Feel, and that episode will be coming out at the end of September 2023. Until then, for Tim Golding, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.